Welcome to the preaching ministry of Tri-City Baptist Church in Chandler, Arizona. Our desire is that God would be magnified through the preaching of His Word, and that Christians would be challenged, strengthened, and edified in their personal walk with Christ. I invite you to take your Bibles this evening and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, as we continue our study and coming to the end of the uh, armor of God, being battle ready, ready for the conflict that faces us. Appreciated the the special music this evening by the the Messler uh, children, young people, as they had prepared that and played it for their, their grandfather's memorial service yesterday. And I was thinking as Pastor Nathan spoke for that and then spoke at the banquet last night, uh, Ecclesiastes says it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. And we would prefer to go to a party than a funeral. But there's a, there's a sobriety, a seriousness that comes as we think about uh, death and being prepared for death. And when we think about the helmet of salvation and the importance of that, we really come to, to why this is such a, a significant aspect. I want us to consider this this evening. Look with me at verse 14. We're going to read a, a little bit of this just to get the context again as we have been considering the various pieces. It says in verse 14 of Ephesians 6, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God." We've considered the previous several, the four, and coming now this evening to that fifth piece of the Christian's armor, the helmet of salvation. And what I want us to consider this evening is the importance of wearing the helmet of hope, the the hope that we have in our confidence that Christ is our Savior. I mean, helmets can be fairly important. You know, when when I was a, a... a child, little boy, I, I, got a, I got a helmet, a football helmet, to play football in our backyard. I, I love playing different sports. And now this was before bike helmets. This was before all of the, the cautionary concerns today. But, but I had wanted a helmet for birthday or Christmas or some occasion, and, and I got this, this plastic helmet. It wasn't a real high-quality helmet. It wasn't real high-quality plastic. I'm not sure that it would have uh, given much protection for anything besides a a pickup game of football in the backyard. But I remember the confidence that it gave me wearing that helmet. And I still remember wearing that one day, and we're playing football in the backyard, and uh, either I got tackled or tackled somebody, but in the process I rolled over and my helmet went flying off. And I was right at the edge of our yard, and our neighbor's yard had really tall grass. And what I didn't realize was there was a metal pipe hidden in the grass right at the edge of that, our yard and their yard. And my head, minus the helmet, connected with that metal pipe. Now, some of you may say, that explains a lot. Now, it, didn't, it really didn't hurt a lot, but it did remind me that helmet was only good if it was on. You know, when it comes to the hope that we have of salvation, 
the hope that we have in our salvation is only as good as, as, as it is secure. And sometimes this is where the, the concerns come that, that we begin to wonder. For a Roman soldier, they would not go into battle without their helmet. Now, some helmets were made of a thick leather covered with metal plates. Uh, others were a heavy molded beaten metal. They, they would usually have the pieces that would come around. They would wrap around the, the side of the head to protect the cheek. And, and this was to protect the head from being vulnerable in battle. For, for the Roman, the purpose was to protect their head from injury, especially from the large double-edged broadsword that would be used often in battle. This, this type of sword would be used by, by those on horseback. Uh, it'd be three to four feet long. It'd be swung with two hands. It was, it was a large, imposing weapon. Now, that's actually a different sword than we're going to consider Lord willing next week uh, when we talk about the sword of the Spirit. That's a different sword that's being referred to there. There's different Greek words for the different types of weapons. But this would be carried into battle, and, and if the enemy were able to connect, it, it, could be a, it could result in a decapitating blow or splitting the skull. It, it would be a death blow. So, so why is the helmet so important? I mean, what is it that's being protected? And it's really the brain. You know, we, we, with sports today, with football today, they have concussion protocol. If there is a severe collision and the helmet does stay on, and, and, and yet they're not, con they're not sure but what there might be a, a, an injury, they pull that person out. And they have a concussion protocol. They have a process they go to to find out, are they thinking clearly? And, you know, and what is going on? And so when we, when we look at this, what we're understanding is it's to protect our, our minds, our ability to think. And, and understanding that it says to take or receive, to accept that helmet of salvation. So, so the question that would, ought to come to our minds is we've been looking at the, the armor of God for the battle. We've looked at various pieces. We've talked about the belt of truth, the, the battle for, against error and dishonesty, the breastplate of righteousness, fighting unrighteousness. The readiness of the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, trusting God, and, and that protects us against these attacks of Satan with the flaming darts. And when we understand these and, and all of these pieces that we've looked at, why is it now that we're talking about the helmet of salvation? I mean, why now is this piece of armor coming up? Wouldn't, wouldn't we think, well, you know, we're talking salvation, that ought to come first, before the others. And, and understanding, it, it almost doesn't seem right. It almost seems like, like things are a little bit out of order. Shouldn't we start with salvation and then add to our faith these other aspects of the armor? Well, it helps us to remember who is Paul talking to? Who is the audience? If you look back up at verse 10, it tells us, Finally, my brethren... He's addressing believers. He, he's speaking to Christians. And so really I think what we understand is he's, he's speaking to Christians about the importance of, of protecting their minds. To think biblically, to reason accurately. 
You know, the, the unsaved person can't do that. The Bible says the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them. He, he can't learn it because it takes the Holy Spirit. These are spiritually discerned. But when it comes to this aspect, we're really looking at protecting our thinking, our reasoning, so we think biblically. That we're wearing the helmet of salvation. And I think a passage that is very helpful in this is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I, I think it sheds light on what we are looking at here in Ephesians chapter 6. Beginning in, in, in this passage, verse 5, it says, You all, sons of light and sons of the day, we are not of the night nor of the darkness. So he's speaking to believers. And so he says, Therefore, let us not sleep as others do. But let us watch and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us that whether we are wake or sleep, we should live together with him. And in this passage, we have that statement of the helmet of the hope of salvation. And that's why I've titled this, Wearing the Helmet of Hope. Because when we understand the importance of this, the, in biblical terms, hope is best understood as the, the confident certainty. It, it's not the, well, I hope things work out. You know, sometimes you ask a person, do you know if you die, you go to heaven? So, well, I hope so. That's not a confident certainty. That's not what they're expressing. It's, it's not, well, I, I just hope for the best. That's not what we're referring to. We're talking about this confidence. I have this hope, this, this sure foundation. And understanding that this is what we're looking at, that, that right thinking gives confidence. And especially when it comes to the area of our salvation. The Bible devotes lengthy passages to talking about the certainty of our, our salvation and the, the confidence that that brings. But if we think wrongly in this area, the distorted thinking is, is going to result in deceived thinking. And then it lo there's a loss of confidence. You know, that, that some people are so ill-taught that they think, well, you know, if, if I mess up, I'm going to lose my salvation. And there is some teaching out there that, well, okay, you're saved, but if, if, there's a, if you mess up or if you don't do the right things or if you don't go through certain religious rituals, then, then you've lost it. And you mess up, you're out. There are other people that think it's like fire insurance. Well, I said a prayer, my mom told me about it, I've got a date written in a Bible somewhere on a shelf somewhere in a closet, therefore I'm good. No, that's not what the Bible talks about. You know, that, you know, sometimes people say, well, once you're saved, if, if you believe in eternal security, once saved, always saved, does that mean you can live as you want? And the answer to that is no and yes. <laughs> when you're truly saved, your wants will change. So the person asking is usually, can I just continue to live in sin? No. But if you're truly saved, God changes what you want. And this is why Paul said, the things I want to do, I, I'm struggling to do. 
The things I don't want to do, I still do. What changed? What he wanted. And so there is that aspect that when we're truly saved, we can do what we want because we have a different desire. And when we understand the nature of salvation, it really gives us a, a confidence. But we didn't just wake up one morning and decide, you know what, I want to be a Christian. There's been a process of the Holy Spirit working. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. And understanding that God's plan of salvation is, is much more than simply when we put our trust in Him or said the prayer of justification. That's part of it. But that's only a piece of God's plan of salvation. And when we understand the bigger picture of salvation, it really does give us a confidence. Because when you, when you understand the nature of salvation, you realize that something has been brought to birth that never existed before. There's been a new birth. Those who were dead in trespasses and sin are made alive. And before salvation, we, you know, people find the Bible boring. There's no interest in spiritual things. You're back in church on a Sunday night. Why would you do that? I mean, that's how our world thinks. You know, we, they check their box. I, I'm good with God, at least for a short time. I've got my fire insurance, I hope. Like, why do we come? Because we want to hear God's word. There's an interest in spiritual things. Before salvation, you know, we're annoyed. Say, well, if I, if I get saved, I can't do all the things I want. Well, actually, there's going to be a freedom. And there's going to be that change. And before salvation, there's a desire for the world. But our love changes. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. And I, I'm, saying, I'm helping us with this because we often tend to think of salvation in a very narrow context. We, we tend to focus on regeneration, is the theological term, the giving of spiritual life to those who were spiritually dead, or, or justification, as we, we talked about last Sunday morning, the be, being declared righteous in God's court because Christ paid the penalty, and now I'm treated as righteous, as just. His robes for mine. It's that imputed righteousness. But theologically, when we talk about salvation, it encompasses much more than just regeneration or justification. In fact, in, in checking one of my systematic theology books or notes, there, there were 11 different areas that were listed under the doctrine of salvation. Went to an ordination council once and they had 13 areas listed. And, and so it's, it's getting into that, but understanding, we recognize that. If you want to turn back to chapter 1 of Ephesians, because when we went through Ephesians, we really saw how this starts to, to play out. If you, if you turn to Ephesians 1, look at verse 4. Ephesians 1, 4, just as he chose us in him before the salvation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Verse 12, it says, 
that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In verse 13, in whom you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And in this passage, we, we, we step back and see salvation as much more than when we've prayed and asked the Lord to be our Savior. When did our salvation begin? In eternity past. And we see that in this passage. He chose us before the foundation of the world, before the world was created. This is the greatness of God. And then to realize what he's doing, that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. So it began before we were born, before the world was created. And when we are saved, we are sealed until the, the day of redemption. All of this is taking place. And it refers to this as, as our salvation. So God's plan goes back from, to before the world began. And it continues through justification, sanctification, until that eternal glorification with security and perseverance until we are finally glorified. Now, when we ask the question, so when were you saved? We're really focusing on that point where we realize I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I'm not saved because my parents were saved. I'm not saved because I was baptized or went to a church or joined a church. I'm saved because I put my trust in Jesus Christ alone. And usually when we ask about somebody's salvation, we're talking about, so when did that occur? We really are looking at that point of, of justification where that realization was pressed upon us. That's normally how we speak of it, but that's not what re Paul is referring to here, I don't believe. He doesn't mean receive Christ as your Savior. The only ones who take on this armor are those who are saved. So he's bringing us back to that hope. And we see this as well in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. It says, in the latter part of verse 12, it says, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. And sometimes we read that and say, okay, so it, I, am I supposed to work for my salvation? No, it's not. It's, it's saying, show the outworking of your salvation. The fact that we belong to the Lord now ought to be evidenced in our life because we want to do new things. We want to serve the Lord. But it continues in verse 13 and says, but it is God who works in you both to will, to give you the desire and give you the power to do it. So it's not something that I conjure up. Okay, I want to do this. I, I really want to. I'm telling myself I want to do it. I don't want to do it. No, it's God that gives us that desire. To read the Bible. Pastor Scott was sharing with our board a gentleman that he's been working with and, and talking with, and, and he talked about giving him a Bible, and the guy started reading the Bible, and he said, you know, I'm planning to just read for a few minutes, and I find out I'm reading for 45 minutes. He said, and then I, I did this for a whole week, and I decided I need to take a day off. I've been reading my Bible every day. I need to quit. I need to take a day off. And then he told Pastor Scott, he said, I got halfway through the day and said, I want to read my Bible. What changed? He had new life. It is God who works in us both to give us the desire, the will, and then the power to do it. And so that's what we're speaking of. It doesn't mean we earn our salvation. 
But understanding, we really understand salvation is, you know, initially that regeneration, the giving spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead. But there's three key aspects that we usually, when we take all of these various nuances of uh, salvation and focus on justification, that's that, that point where we are saved from the penalty of sin. It's in the past for a believer. That, so when we say, when were you saved? Well, you know, I remember as a child, trusting the Lord as my personal Savior. And, and that being that point of justification. Sanctification, that's being saved from the power of sin. That's the process. That, so, that sanctification is both an act, we are sanctified, we are set apart at that moment of justification, but then it's a process. As we grow in knowing what pleases the God, what pleases the Lord, as we grow in desiring to be holy as He is holy. And so the struggle that Paul says, the things I want to do, I don't do, the things I don't want to, who can deliver me from this body of death? The sanctification. And then glorification is being free, saved from the presence of sin. We look forward to that. That when we get to heaven, that we will no longer have this battle with sin, the flesh, the devil. And understanding this, the, the encouragement of that. But recognizing when we are saved, that moment of justification, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. All of our sins, past, present, and future, are under the blood for justification. Now when we sin, there's a fellowship aspect. And so, 1 John tells us, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and righteous just to forgive us and cleanse us. But it's being written to believers. It's in the fellowship aspect. That we're saved at justification from the penalty and in sanctification, we're growing in grace. That sin no longer has the mastery over us. So that's why we put on the whole armor of God. The panoply is the Greek word there. That we would, would be getting victory and we anticipate that time when we will be in the presence of the Lord and free from the presence of sin. We look forward to that day. And, and so the, the term being used then is glorification there, but the idea is all of this is part of salvation. So the, the helmet of the hope of salvation is the confident assurance that God will accomplish what He's planned. So Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. What has begun will continue until it's complete. And that's the work of God. And you can't put your hope in the helmet of salvation until you've trusted Christ for your salvation. It's by faith alone in Christ alone. And when we are his children, then we have the confidence of the certainty of our salvation. But you know, if you're shaken in that, if you're uncertain regarding your spiritual state, it's going to hinder your ability to be a good soldier. We're going to have questions. Many, many Christians are non-combatants because they're shaken in their thinking. They're not, they don't have that security. You won't be able to stand and withstand if you're distressed about whether or not you're still in your sins. So do you th think there's ever been a Christian who's been distressed about remaining in their sins? 
Satan loves to bring that up. Well, if you're really a Christian, how could you do this? How could you think this? How could you respond that way? How could, and, and well, remember what you did in the, and all of a sudden we're shaken. I, I mentioned I was, I, I was saved as a child. I, I re- remember my, my mom leading me to the Lord. We were in Albion, Michigan. My dad was pastoring there in Albion, and we were in the parsonage. Um, I don't think I was in trouble at the time. I, I remember my mom talking with me about the gospel. And I remember praying. But I also remember when I got to college, you know, I started to learn more clearly what the Bible said about faith and repentance and surrender and trust. And I'm like, I don't know that I really understood all that. You know, I I don't remember my mom talking to me about the, you know, explaining theologically repentance and faith and all of these. She talked about me being a sinner and needing a Savior. And, And I really started to wrestle. And thinking, okay, I think I'm saved. And, and I, I, I went through this for, for some time. It went back and forth. And it, was, it wasn't just a day. It was over time. I think, okay, I think I'm good. And then it's like, well, but I'm not sure. I don't remember exactly what I said. And I remember one day just going down. They had a prayer room there in the dormitory. And I went down to that dorm room, that prayer room. And I got on my knees with my Bible. And I said, Lord, I know what your word says. And as far as I know, I have asked you to be my Savior. I know there's nothing I can do to save myself. But if not, I'm asking you now because my only hope is in Jesus Christ. And you know what that did? That really, that's tightened the helmet. I really do believe I was saved as a child. But that hope, that confidence that came when it was settled that no longer am I concerned about my helmet flying off and I'm hitting my head against a metal post somewhere. And so then when Satan would bring up the doubts, it's like, no, I've settled this. And it's not because of what I've done, it's because of what Christ has promised. I've done everything his word said, and and if that's not enough, I have no hope. But it is enough, because I know who I've believed. And I'm persuaded that he's able to keep what I've committed. It brought that confidence. The helmet of the hope of salvation was secure. You know, when you come to the place where you've accepted what God's Word said, and that really was where I had to settle it. I know what God's Word says. I know what it says I'm to do. I've done that. I have to leave it with the Lord. That protects your mind. That's the helmet that protects you from those those attacks of Satan. You know, and, and what, I'll, I'll tell you, one of the struggles in preaching is, is sometimes to you want to preach clearly and strongly enough that people who are complacent understand this is serious but you also don't want people who are struggling to think i must not be saved and realizing the importance of this that that but i will say false assurance is worse than no assurance now those aren't the only options but there are reasons that doubts come one is because the spirit of god is convicting a person If a person is unsaved and the Holy Spirit is convicting them, and that's really the first place to check. So when our children, at times when they're wrestling, it's like, okay, let's talk about this. Let's talk about what the Bible says. Where are we starting? I want to know if the Holy Spirit is convicting them. Because if there's an assurance, I want it to be Holy Spirit assurance, not daddy assurance. Not parental assurance. And, And so, you know, if there's no assurance because there's no salvation then there needs to be salvation there might not be assurance because there's no life 
And so that's, a, that's the first place to ask. The, the second one is if there's sin in the life. Because it's the Holy Spirit that bears witness with our spirit, convincing us that we belong to the Lord. If we're quenching the Holy Spirit, then those doubts are going to start arising. And one of the aspects of salvation is God has designed it in such a way that we're not supposed to be confident living in sin. That's one of the things that ought to motivate us to confess sin. That we're struggled, that we, we shouldn't be complacent saying, well, I know I'm in sin, but it doesn't matter because I'm saved and I have the date. Well, we need to be cautious about that. Because a, a false assurance is far worse than no assurance. And so the second area, if we say, well, yes, I know I'm saved, okay, is there known sin in our life? A third one is then if, if we say, no, I don't think there is. I, you, know, you know, obviously I'm not perfect, but I'm seeking to confess my sin. I'm trying to keep a short account with the Lord. I'm trying to be faithful to Him. Well, then there are times that Satan just attacks. And those fiery arrows of doubt that we talked about last week, to get us off guard, to cause us to struggle. Now, now I will say, I think these are the three key areas. I, I will say that, that sometimes just a person's personality can cause them to be more doubtful. The more introspective person will struggle with this more than, than a person who, who doesn't have that tendency. But understanding the confidence is always in the Word of God and the promises of God and that we're trusting Him. And, and recognizing, as, as I've said, that, that false assurance is worse than no assurance, but those aren't the only two options. Because there is a biblical assurance. And First John tells us of this. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. This letter is written so that you can know. And there have been many times in talking with people who have struggled with, I'm, I'm not sure of my salvation, and we, we look at, you know, is it the Spirit convicting? Is there known sin? And they just kind of in turmoil. I say, you know what? Read First John. Read it every day for a month. The five chapters, it's a short letter. You want confidence? Read it every day. And ask the Holy Spirit to work in your life. Because there's a number, uh, the, the objective confidence of our salvation is in Christ alone. But there is a, a subjective aspect when we're living out that we've changed. And there, there are several things in John that are mentioned to help us examine our lives. One is a changed life. True believers walk in the light. If you walk in the light as he is in the light, you have fellowship with one another and you have fellowship with believers. We have fellowship with God, we have fellowship with others. So there's that changed life. We've talked about that. There's the confession of sin. That we agree with what God says about sin. If we confess, and that confession is not just, okay, I got caught, I confess, I did it. No, it's really, I agree with God that my sin deserves punishment. If we confess our sins, Lord, forgive me. He is faithful. He is just. The, the idea of righteous to forgive us and cleanse us. Not just forgive, to make, but to make us clean. One of the characteristics of a true believer is that awareness of their sinfulness. 
And, and the more we grow spiritually, the more we realize, I have not arrived. That it may not be the outward sins, it may be the attitudes. And realize, you know, I, I have a ways to go to be truly demonstrating the, the fruit of the Spirit on a consistent basis. Obedience is a third one. True believers obey. By this you will know that you are His disciples when you keep His commandments. And it says the commandments are not burdensome to us. And you find this in several areas in 1 John. The, the result of salvation is a desire to obey. It's, n- it's not the requirement for salvation. But it's the outworking of it. Love for Christians. True believers love other Christians. And chapter 3 speaks of this. Then, and Jesus said, By this will all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. But that love for, for the brethren is an aspect. Orthodoxy, affirming sound doctrine, is brought out in here. And, and we've mentioned before, I've mentioned that the educated unbelief is unsaved unbelief. When we know what the Bible says and don't believe it, that's a problem. Now, we might hear something and say, oh, I don't believe that. And they say, well, let's look at what Scripture says. Let's look at how this comes together. That, you know, uneducated unbelief is one thing. But we need to, we need to say, I want to know what God's Word says, and, and I'm going to change my beliefs to line up with the Word of God because this isn't going to change. You know, we live in a culture where, as, as Pastor Nathan, when he mentioned one of the core values of truth, we live in a culture where truth can be whatever you want it to be and it can change. No, God's Word is truth. Christ is truth. And that's not going to change. And so we bring ourselves under subjection to the Word of God, that orthodoxy, and then victory. That freedom from habitual sins, that true believers are, are able to put off sin. And this is the struggle. And, and so it be, in, in chapter 2 of 1 John, it begins, these things I write unto you, little children, that you don't sin. But if you do sin, you have an advocate. John is very binary. He draws the lines, the black and white. Don't sin. I'm writing so you won't sin. But if you do sin, there's hope. And and you see it going back and forth in that aspect. And when we have the confidence, you know what? I know who I've trusted. I have put my faith in Jesus Christ alone. I know who I've believed. That helmet is secure. That gives us confidence. And not the confidence of a a little boy playing backyard football with a plastic helmet. It's the confidence that it's not me that has brought this together. This is the work of God. He brought us from death to life. That's chapter 2 of Ephesians. From, From being under the power of darkness to being children of light. And so we can walk with that hope, that confidence. We can go into the battle knowing, yes, we're struggling. Yes, there are battles. Yes, there's the, we're in the process of sanctification if we're truly saved. And there are things we need to put off and put on. There's that replacement. But we have the confidence that I know who I've believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I've committed unto him against that day. So we press toward the mark of the prize hall, of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus with confidence that one day we will be free from the presence of sin completely. We will be glorified. 
And that's the hope that we have as believers. That's the hope of the helmet. So do you have that confidence in your salvation? That you belong to Christ? That you've been justified? Then are you walking daily in the confidence of that salvation being lived out with the anticipation that we will be in His presence free from sin? Are we wearing the helmet of hope this evening? Let's pray together.